Our Bible reading comes from Colossians, and it's the last chapter. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus. How am I going, Pastor? Oh, good. How am I going, Andrew? All right? Oh, good. Our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark and cousin, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and full, fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to, to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church of her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that all see that it also read in the, in the church of Laodiceans and that in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Arch Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, thanks, Lee, for that reading. Um, I gave Lee the, the rest of Colossians chapter 4. We're only going to focus on uh, verses uh, 2 to 6, but I just want to see how he went with all those, uh, those names. <laughs> and he did well. Well done, Lee. That was excellent. But, but can I encourage you? We, we, I'm not going to talk through uh, some of those people, but I encourage you to go home and, and even just Google some of those names or find some sort of Bible dictionary or, or commentary and look at some of those names. There's some interesting people in there and interesting people that, that Paul has brought together 
that maybe shouldn't sort of fit together, but they do, and they're doing it for the glory of God. So, so there, are, there is importance into those people and why Paul names them. So I, 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 I encourage you, go home and explore it. Explore who these people are. We are coming to the end of the Colossians series today, this, this call to continue, to not stay stagnant in faith, to not stop in faith, to not stay still in faith, but to continue in faith. And we remember um, through the, uh, the book of uh, Colossians that we're encouraged, regardless of any obstacles that come our way, regardless of pressures that are around us, that a faith in Jesus and his teachings will hold up against any pressure. Through the book of Colossians, we hear the words in Christ or some sort of derivative of that 19 times. 19 times it brings us this this thought, in Christ. That's a lot. So when you hear something a lot or a lot of uh, times, you sort of have to hold weight in it, don't you? So it says it 19 times. So... um, we think it's important. So if we go back to the start of the book of Colossians, remember Paul is writing to a, a relatively new church, a church that he'd never been to before, and a group of people that he'd never met. And he's writing them for a specific reason, because there were some that were going to come and bring new philosophies into the church, some new truths that uh, don't align to the teachings of Christ. So Paul's emphasis is all about being in Christ being solidified in Christ, keeping Christ central in your lives. It, can ta- it, can, it can, gives us an idea of an intimacy with Christ, doesn't it? A personal connection with Christ. And as we've talked about in the last few weeks especially, a transformed life because of this relationship that we have. It makes sense by identifying ourselves in or with Christ, we're actually identifying with Christ's death and his resurrection, something that we do through the waters of baptism as well. In, uh, each week we've seen Paul put Christ central in the middle of the arguments that he's mounted, which brings these threats against the Colossian church. And last week we talked about a reality, a new reality of Christ being central in the relationships that are closest to you. So this morning we're going to look at the start of chapter 4, and once again, he keeps Christ central. So let's pray and get stuck into this last part of Colossians. Loving God, I pray that this morning, as we look into your word, I pray that you help us to have ears to hear, hearts that are open to listening to you, that my words won't be just my own words, but they'll be your words speaking through to us all. Amen. Have you ever gone to the movies and and gotten really drawn in by uh, the start of a movie? Just really encaptured. But then you get to the end of the movie and it's just, you've gone, what was that? Has anyone ever done that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's plenty of movies out there like that. Um, Or or maybe it's like when you watch the gymnastics at the the Olympics. I love watching the gymnastics. I, I can't do gymnastics myself at all. But I love those when they go on the rings, especially the, the, the men and the women that go on those rings, you know, the rings that hang up, they jump up and then they hold up like that and their muscles are way out here and that sort of thing. And all of a sudden their legs are out straight and then they're upside down, and, but their muscles are just unbelievable. And you watch these gymnasts go through this amazing routine and it's perfect, totally perfect. And then it comes to the dismount 
and they jump up and they go, and then they stumble on the dismount. How disappointing. May have started well. The movie could have started well, but the ending left disappointed. Or the gymnast may have done a great job at the start, but just didn't stick the landing that you're hoping they would. And each time you think the memory that you have is about the end, not about the beginning, isn't it? It's about the end. So, so um, as Paul gets to the end of his letter for the Colossians, I reckon that Paul was thinking through, how can I land this letter that people will go away with what I've already said and put it into practice? So I reckon that's where Paul was at with this letter. I've got to land it so well that people are, this is going to make a difference in the life of that church. He's already had a solid letter. And all he needed was to close it off and bring them something that was kind of complement this idea that we are in Christ, but what does that look like in your daily life? What does he write to finalise this, this message of being in Christ? Well, he, he exhorts the, tr- the church to two specific actions. He says, firstly, he wants them to be devoted to a persistent and watchful prayer. That's the first thing. And the second thing he says is that he wants to have a wise approach as to how you conduct yourself around others. Be persistent in prayer and think about how you conduct yourself in those outside of the church. So let's go through those two things. First of all, a devotion to persistent and watchful prayer. As I read through these verses again this week, the word that stood out to me was that word devote. Um, we had a, a deacon's meeting and that word came up again. Devote yourself. Devote. It implies the giving of yourself towards something, doesn't it? Devote. But a, not just a, I'll give myself across in a little way, but giving a whole lot of yourself. The King James Version of the Bible actually says to continue. It doesn't use the word devote. It says continue in prayer. Continue. Something you're already doing, but don't stop. It's devote is, a, is a, a moving word as well as continue, isn't it? Don't stop, but devote. Continue to pray. Continue to give yourself in prayer. Paul tells us that prayer is something that we need to give our cro- ourselves across to and do. It follows the idea of, of uh, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray continually. Pray continually. Don't stop. So devote yourself to continual prayer, being watchful and thankful. That's what Paul is telling us to do. As people of, of faith, that's a pretty basic statement, isn't it? If I get up here and tell you, go and pray, and pray continually, we probably hear that a fair bit. Make sure you go and pray. Once you leave here, go and pray. Pray continually. Keep praying. Don't stop praying. It's a, it's a good message. But what we know, what we hear, and reality don't often or sometimes don't really mix, do they? I don't know about you, but I'm always impressed with the people that can get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and have a good solid three-hour prayer time before they start work or before they go off and do the things of their day. I'm really impressed by that. I go, wow. And I think, maybe I should do that. Maybe I should be that person that that at 5 o'clock in the morning the alarm goes off, or, or not even that that I pray that I will wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and that my first three hours of the day will be like, I'm really impressed with that. But the reality is that it just doesn't happen. <laughs> I don't do that. And my experience is there are people that do do that and I am so thankful for them. But unless I'm wrong, 
I'd say it's probably not the general consensus of the church that we get up at five o'clock in the morning and have three hours of prayer before we start our time, unless I'm wrong. Most of us are devoted to prayer, but our devotion is slightly different, isn't it? We have devotion to many things in our lives. We're devoted to our work, we're devoted to our families, we're devoted to our university studies or our school. We can sometimes even be devoted to the wrong things, can't we? Isn't that what addiction is? So what does devotion to prayer look like if it doesn't mean getting up for three hours at five o'clock in the morning? I like to think about it in a, in a way that, that maybe us husbands will be able to understand. Husbands, we would say that we're devoted to our wives, wouldn't we? Yep, yep, I'm, I'm seeing some nods. <laughs> husbands, we are devoted to our wives. If you're sitting next to your wife, start nodding frantically. <laughs> but, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we follow them around 24-7, does it? Our wives will be going, what are you doing? I don't want you here 24-7. What is that about? But it does mean that our lives are impacted by who they are. That our lives are impacted and thoughts are shaped by our devotion to our wives. How we act, how we respond and our actions are based around making sure that she's being cared for, being pleased, being nurtured. You know, and sometimes that means not following her around as well. So thinking about that, what does a devotion to prayer then look like? Well, if we head back to the very earliest church experiences, just after Jesus ascended back to heaven, we hear the earliest followers of Jesus had a devoted prayer life as well. Acts 2.42 tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And they, um, they, so who are they? They refer to this new group of believers who had heard the message of Jesus and were baptized, um, 3,000 of them, it says in, in Acts, just after Pentecost. So their lives were radically changed, and in an instant, their devotion was to these things, which included devotion to prayer. It was a daily action. It didn't mean they were on their knees from 5 a.m. till 9pm, but it was a daily action, a daily action of devotion that impacted and changed their lives, just as our devotion to our wives, husbands, makes a difference in the very life that we live. I wonder what the devoted life of, or the devoted prayer life of that early church looked like. Their devotion was dependent upon the change that had just happened in them, definitely. So they had this new life that they were doing. And it was uh, a change that, that made them change. And it was through that transformation the, that, that we've been talking about that prayer became a part of their very fabric of life. Now, if we think about who the people were that were doing this, it was mainly Jews, probably all Jews that were doing this. So they already knew prayer. They already understood prayer in the early church. They would have had set prayer times. They would have had a devotion to a religious prayer. However, through their transformation in Christ, they meet together now, they break bread, and they incorporate prayer into the whole space of who they were and what they were doing. Every day they met together in the temple courts, it tells us. So in a corporate sense, people are coming together to worship. They met and they prayed. And it says in their homes as well. 
So while they were out and while they were at home, they were praying. Prayer would have been functioning in and through all of those spaces. And as the early church grew, boldness in prayer grew also. If we go through Acts, Acts 4, um, we hear prayers for boldness to speak God's word, to go out and speak God's word boldly. In Acts 4.30, we hear prayer for healing and signs and wonders, that this boldness, that they didn't just have a sense of, oh, we just, we just need to pray now, we just need to do a little prayer time. But there was a boldness in prayer, that God, something big is going to happen, something will happen. Stephen, the first martyr, prayed for faith uh, that his, uh, prayed for the faith of his aggressors as he was dying. The early church incorporated prayer into the very fabric of their life, in public and in their home life. And they prayed with boldness, and they ultimately prayed that the kingdom of God would be advanced through this new movement that they were beginning. That was their main prayer. So all of their prayers was that God would be seen, that Jesus would be seen in and through what was going on. They were devoted to prayer. And their prayers made an impact on themselves, on the people around them, and on the world. I wonder what devotion to prayer might look like for us. Now before I suggest a few things, I also want to flip that around. I wonder if devotion to prayer today is hindered by uh, a disbelief that God can answer and does answer any prayer. I wonder if a continual prayer life is, is hindered by a rational mindset that we come across where we question the validity of prayer. I wonder if our devotion to prayer is sometimes stunted because our prayers hit a ceiling and we feel like they're never getting through. And I just want to want to ask a few questions for you, if that's your experience. I want to ask the question, do you believe in the very same Jesus who turned water into wine? Because if you do, your prayers will be different. Do you believe in the very same Jesus who calmed the raging seas? Because if you do, your prayers will be very different. Do you believe in the very same Jesus who healed the sick, who gave sight to the blind and told the lame to walk? Because if you do, how you pray will be very, very different. Do you believe in the very same Jesus who said to a dead man, come alive again, and it happened? Do you believe in the very Jesus who himself died, yet showed up to the faithful with holes in his hands? Do you believe in that Jesus? Because if you do, it's going to impact your prayer life. If we believe that these things happen and we have Jesus as the foundation of our faith as Paul has been telling us through the whole book of Colossians, then prayer just makes sense. It makes sense that we will go off and we'll pray. It makes sense that we'll have prayer in every aspect of our lives. When we sit in a cafe with a friend who's struggling, we'll pray with that person in a cafe. It makes sense that when you're in the schoolyard picking up your children and you come across someone that has a, and you hear their story, you'll pray for them. It makes sense that when your mother is in hospital, you'll go and pray for her. It makes sense that we'll pray. That prayer won't just be something we do at a set time, but prayer will become a constant that we will be praying continually. John Chrysostom, he was an early church father in the early years of the church. 
said some profound words about the effectual power of prayer. He said this. The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the gates of heaven, alleviated diseases, repelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, Repel, oh, sorry, rescued cities from destruction, stayed, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. Prayer is an all-efficient armory, a treasure undiminished, a mine which is never exhausted, a sky unclouded, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. I wonder if we believe that prayer does that sort of stuff. Because if we do, you wouldn't, couldn't help but be devoted to it, surely. It would be the first thing you want to do in the morning. You wake up and you go, well, thanks, God. Thanks for a new day. doesn't have to be long. <laughs> it might be when you get to school, you find someone you know as a Christian and you go, hey, let's, let's start our school day by, by praying. Once again, a couple of minutes together saying, hey, God, thank you for this school. There was a, a program, at, um, I think it was while I was at Temple, so it, ha- it happened as a youth pastor. It was called um, Meet You at the Pole. I don't know if anyone's ever come across that. And it was where Christians would, uh, would gather at their school um, flagpole just to gather and to pray. What a great sort of way of, one, finding out who the other Christians in your schoolyard might be, but, but two, to come together and pray. You might not have a, a, a flagpole in your workplace but you might have a water jug, <laughs> a water fountain, I don't know. You might find somewhere where you can say, let's get together and just pray. It might be sitting having breakfast in a cafe and you see the people around you having breakfast and you might just say a prayer for each table of the people that are there. They might know you're doing that or you might have a sense that God's saying, I need to go and speak to that person that always sits on their own and you might have the opportunity to pray for them. It might be stopping at midday to reassess your day, to, to understand that, hey, my, my first part of my day has been real busy, real busy, and I haven't t- had time to stop and hear from God. So I'm going to stop now and reassess my day and start afresh. It might be listening to God throughout your day, taking space to, to get a sense of God's presence and where God's calling you to be. It's learning to have a constant rhythm of prayerfulness. And you know, that's, it takes practice as well, doesn't it? It takes practice. It doesn't happen straight away. There's a consciousness towards having a devoted prayer life. Just like if you take up a new sport. Take up a new sport that you've never played before. You don't expect to get on the court the first time with your badminton racket in hand and be able to hit that thing that just floats in a funny way uh, across the, the top of the net. You don't expect it to happen straight away. But you get the gist of it, you start to understand it, and you practice more and more, and you hit the, the, the shuttlecock up in the air, and all of a sudden your practice has helped you become better at it. It's the same with prayer. Give yourself to it. Learn about it. Be conscious about training yourself to be better at it. Devote yourself to prayer. Because that's what Paul's asking this church to do. After all he's said and done, devote yourselves to prayer. 
But he asks it with a, a, a presupposition as well. He says, devote yourself to, to prayer, being watchful. What does he mean by being watchful? Well, my mind automatically turns to the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know about your mind, but where Jesus says, watch and pray. It's a similar sort of thing. And of course, the disciples that were with him, they fall asleep. And Jesus in Matthew 26, 41 says, watch and pray. Why? So that you will not fall into temptation. So that you will not fall into temptation. Watchful in prayer. Jesus was wanting them to be look out on the lookout for trouble, that no one's coming to, to take him at this important time of prayer, for sure. But he's also giving them the warning that, hey, there's going to be dangers along the way. There's going to be dangers that are trying to snare you, to try and take you away from a life of devotion to prayer, a life of devotion to Christ, of keeping Christ in the, in the central part of your life. So Paul tells us, and Jesus told his disciples, be watchful in prayer. Be alert in prayer that we don't fall into temptation. Be devoted to prayer, watchful. And then he also tells us with thanksgiving. Why thanksgiving? Well, I have a feeling that, that if, uh, if we have uh, our eyes on other things in prayer rather than ourselves, we're going to be thankful. If you're thankful, your eyes are focused on what someone else has done rather than what you are doing. So thankfulness in prayer moves us away from this idea that devotion to prayer is all about me and devotion to prayer is actually about others. That's why I like the ACTS prayers. Everyone come across the ACTS prayer, the acronym A-C-T-S? A is adoration. We adore God first and foremost. We worship God. C, uh, um, it's A-C, yes, C is confession. Bringing to God those things that actually we, we need to say, hey, I'm sorry. Things that hinder us from having a devotion to God and devotion to prayer, I suppose. T is the thanks part of it. And thanks is giving thanks for all that God's done. I used to go from, um, when I used to work as a land surveyor, I used to work in Hawthorne. And I used to drive from um, Ringwood there to Hawthorne. It used to take an hour and a half because it was just a nightmare to get to. But in that hour and a half, um, there were many times where all I did on that morning was say prayers of thanks. For an hour and a half, I just was reeling off things that I could be thankful for. And I could have kept going and going and going. The S part of the ACTS acronym, acronym comes after thanks is supplication. And the word supplication is defined by the act of asking or begging for something earnestly or humbly. In my experience, the asking part of um, this ACTS prayer actually is not all about, it doesn't become about me at all. We don't have this arrogant shopping list prayer because we've gone through a process of keeping our eyes on Jesus, giving ourselves across to God, thanking God for what he's done. And all of a sudden, as we come into a space of praying, our prayers actually start to become uh, linked in with the heart of God. It becomes what God's been doing. When we've been thankful for the things God is doing, we reorientate our hearts towards God so that when we ask of God, we're not coming with a, a personal shopping list. Rather, we're coming to God with the things that speak to the heart of God. So tomorrow night, we've got a couple of our basketball teams are in the grand finals, not the grand finals, in the finals of the basketball. And uh, get along, it's in, the, it's in the care link, get along and support the teams of basketball, which is really cool. But um, So I'm, I'm playing at 8 o'clock, I think, and uh, 7 o'clock, one of the teams, 7, 1, 8. 
And, and I could be praying that we win that game because it would be really good to win the basketball game. It would be really good to move on into the finals and get to the grand final and win the grand final. It would be really good. But if I'm thankful to what God's been doing in my life and my heart's reoriented to God, then my prayer's not going to be how I can do well in the game. My prayer rather will be for those who are playing that we don't get hurt, that we have a great um, game where we can uh, uh, have great sportsmanship. You know, praying uh, thankful prayers, um, rather than praying that God will protect me, I'll ask for God to be protecting uh, the people around me. You know, it reorients our prayers, doesn't it? So Paul moves on to, to, to verse 3 then, and then he starts asking them to pray for him. Not so much for him, though, for his ministry. And he says in verse 3, He prayed that God will open to us a door for the world that we may declare the mystery of Christ. He writes that sitting in a prison. It epitomizes what we've just said. Paul could very easily have said, pray that I'll be unshackled from these chains, that I'll be able to then get out into the world, that I'll be able to share the message of Christ with other people because I've got this gift of speaking to other people that I will then make an impact in the world. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't even ask for them to say, break out my chains. Rather, he asks that his prayer or his prayer would be that the kingdom of God will be enhanced. You know, the bottom line in prayer for this is we're called to devote ourselves to watchful and thankful prayer. Why? So that we can further the kingdom of God in and through the world. That's the bottom line. That's what Paul is getting at at the end. So be devoted to prayer. Be devoted to persistent, watchful prayer for the heart of the kingdom to grow. The second thing that he calls us to do in the end of his message is to um, be wise about how we conduct ourselves to those who are not in the church, to those that are outside of the community of believers that gathers. And you know what? This group that were in Colossae, they were a minority group. Uh, they, they were um, in a, a fairly hostile environment, I suppose, but they had a concern for those around them. They were marginalised because of their faith, but that didn't deter them from the message of hope that they uh, had been sharing. So there was an understanding that their role in the community that they lived was important, and it was as important as the missionaries that had been going out into the world. They had an importance in the kingdom growth of this new way, this way of Jesus. And it's the same today. Each one of us has a role to play in the growth of God's kingdom in the world. It's your role is important as Franklin Graham's role, who preaches to 12,000 people at Hisense Arena. It's a great gig, isn't it? Preaching to 12,000 people. And you think, wow, he's got a, a great ministry. But if it wasn't for the role of each one of us who maybe talked to our neighbours or maybe brought a friend along, if we didn't, he didn't have those who are just getting alongside their neighbours and understanding who they are, taking them to a Franklin Graham um, tour, he wouldn't even have a platform, would he? So Paul, in his final urge, asked the church to be out in their community and being wise as to how to act in it. Conduct yourself to wisely towards out outsiders, making the most of the time. The word conduct in Greek is peripateo. Peri meaning about and pateo meaning to walk. And you get this idea of conduct means as you go about, Walking around, as you go about 
in your life, as you walk about in the world, how are you acting? How are you being? Our conduct, our walk, speaks volumes to the world that we live in. And Paul's words give us this urgency, a sense of urgency in it. Make the most of the time that you have. God's given you this time. So as you walk about in your community, as you get out and about in the spaces that God's given you to be in, make the most of your conduct. Make the most of your time. It was good on Friday night. I got to go and speak to the, the youth uh, group. Um, Sheridan invited me along and we had a chat. And we we're chatting about the people that we looked up to, the people that we respect. And it was really great. The response of the, of the young people were awesome because none of them said, I love Katie. No, none of them said this anyway. I love Katie Perry because of how she looks. None of them said that. But rather they, they chose people either in their lives or people that were famous, not for their looks or the, for their physical appearance, but for something that they respected about the inside of them, for something about their character, about their inequalities that make us want to be like that person. And we talked about the fruit of the Spirit that we might be displaying as we become more like Christ, the, 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 the being awesome on the inside rather than just being a person of the outside. And this is the conduct that people outside the church look for and look to, isn't it? It's not what you look like on the outside, but it's how you are on the inside. How you walk around isn't about what we wear, the great shoes that we wear, or, or what we are, but it's how we conduct ourselves through what we're like on our inside. But Paul moves beyond just the walk and specifically calls us to our talk as well. He says, consider your speech because your speech is just and important. You might think that Paul might have coined that term, um, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Or well, it sort of works the other way around. You walk the walk, but can you talk the talk? Exactly, because in, in that way, it suggests that they've got to be connected. Imagine displaying the fruit of the Spirit like I was speaking to the, the young people on Friday night, and you've got love, joy, peace, all these things are coming out, and then when you opened up your mouth, all that came out were discouraging words, were put-downs, were swearing, filthy jokes. Imagine that all this fruit was coming out, except what came out of your mouth was totally different. The two just wouldn't go hand in hand. So Paul tells the Colossian church that you've got to be able to speak as well. And he gives us three things that we've got to be speaking well about. One is we've got to be gracious in our speech. The term grace means unmerited favour. To be gracious in our speech means to use our words to, to, words to build up rather than to destruct. As people of faith, are we gracious in our words towards that neighbour that keeps on doing something that really sort of just irks you a little bit? Are we gracious in our words towards those in our office places who put others down in order to get themselves ahead? See, a gracious word builds up rather than destructs. The second thing that he asks us to do in our, in our speech is to be seasoned with salt. I put salt on our meats because it enhances flavour, doesn't it? Um, it's a, a flavour enhancer. It brings out the best in the meat. And so perhaps Paul is steering us within our speech that as we speak to those who are not people of faith, is our speech enhanced in a way that is wholesome, that is goodness, that is bringing out the best in others? Is our testimony plausible because our speech has been worthy of being listened to in the past? You see, our effectiveness as a witness is massively dependent upon our words and how they come across. 
The third thing that he tells us to do with our speech is be prepared with an answer. We don't need to have all the answers, do we? I don't think anyone has all the answers. However, we must have an answer to the question, why do you believe what you believe? Because if your walk is saying a lot, if what's coming out from the inside is saying a lot to someone, someone's going to be starting to ask you, why are you the way you are? Why do you act so differently to the other people that I know? What is it about you as a Christian that makes you different? Have you got an answer to that question? That's the question we need to be able to answer. What sets you apart? And if you can't answer that, go back to the start of Colossians and reread it. Because Paul gives us the answers. Paul tells us what it is. It's because we are in Christ. 1 Peter 3.16 says a similar thing. Always be prepared to give an answer for the faith that you have. Be prepared to give that answer. So pray with alertness and thanks. Walk the walk. Talk the talk. These are Paul's parting words to the Colossian church. And they're parting words that help us to to remind us to keep Christ central. Words that bring us to a sense of understanding of what it means to be in Christ. And when the noises from outside creep in, trying to break out and break away from what you know, may you not waver, but rather through continual prayer, through walking the walk, talking the talk, to continue. To continue in faith, continue in strength, continue in prayer, continue in hope. Let's pray. Loving God, we do thank you for your word, your word that gives us courage to journey with you. We thank you that, loving God, that you have given us the courage to be people who walk our faith, who display our faith in the way that we act. But may we be people who also use our words graciously, who use our words seasoned with salt, and who are ready to give an answer. May we be people of prayer, alert to what you're calling us to be and do in our communities. May our prayer life be continual, and may we uh, live our lives as a prayer, sort of honouring prayer to you. So loving God, help us today to to walk away today a little differently to where we started this morning. We thank you, Lord. Amen.